So this evening I'm starting a new series and we're going to be looking at the book of Esther. Esther is found in the Old Testament just before Job and Psalms. And if you aren't familiar with the book, it's a book that is towards the end of the Old Testament chronologically. It's one of the last things we hear about God's people Israel. Esther is written after the exile of God's people. And we know from the series in Lamentations that God's people were in exile because of their rebellion. God's people had been taken captive by the Babylonians, but the Babylonians were now defeated and the Persians took over. And the people of Judah came under the rule of Cyrus in Persia. And Cyrus, in Ezra chapter 1, called a decree for the people of Judah to go back to their homeland and rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem. This was in around about 530 BC. And as we come into Esther, we are around uh, 483 to 473 BC. So about 50 years after the proclamation made by Cyrus. So why are some of these Jews still in Persia? Surely they'd return back to their homeland and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Some of them stayed away from God's land because they'd settled. Maybe they had homes and businesses. Maybe they forgot God and his promises. But anyway, after the exile, God's people were meant to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and restore the city. But some stayed in Persia and didn't return. And that's the people who we see in this book, wanting to stay in a foreign land under the rule of a foreign king. The Jews we come across in Esther should have gone back to God's land when Cyrus in Ezra made a decree for all the people of Judah to go back and rebuild the city. So Esther is a strange book. We see God's people in a distant land by choice under the rule of a pagan king. And this book, Esther, is even more strange. It doesn't even mention God. The whole 10 chapters of Esther doesn't mention God once. Is that intentional? I believe it is. I think the writer wants us to know that although God's people may have forgotten God, he's still working things out for their good. But even though God's presence isn't announced in Esther, this book isn't announced in Esther. It's clear we see throughout this book that it has to be God's doing when certain events happen. As we go through this book, the author doesn't tell us that it was God. And as I said, the author doesn't even mention God. But, it's, but the clear message of the book is that God is sovereign and he will save his people regardless of their enemies. And I think the book of Esther is a timely book for us to look at today. Today as God's people, so many things happen every day which are from God, yet we don't often see them. This book helps us to recognize God's hand, even when it's not spoken of. So tonight I'm going to read Esther chapter 1 and 2. Well, because there's a lot to read, I'll break it up. So I'll read each section for each point. So if you look down at Esther chapter 1, we'll read from verses 1 to 11. And if you haven't found that yet, in the blue church Bible, it's page number 501. And in the larger print, it's page number 771. Let 
So verses 1 to 11 of Esther chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Menumen, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Agbatha, Zatha, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. So the first part I want us to look at, verses 1 to 11, is the king's majesty displayed. Today there's a social networking site called Instagram. And on Instagram we see celebrities posting about themselves. They post photos of their achievements. They put photos of their amazing holidays and their amazing expensive cars and their amazing homes. And they post pictures of their families looking perfect. And their Instagram pages just look amazing. They look like they've made it. And sometimes the average person looks at these people and sees their possessions and thinks, if only I had that. The celebrity's profile is made up of snapshots that they want you to see. And they want everyone to see how great they are. As we come into this book, Esther, King Xerxes is doing a similar thing to most celebrities on Instagram. But King Xerxes has almost invited people to come into a physical Instagram. King Xerxes wants to show off everything just like on Instagram. Firstly, he shows his wealth and his kingdom. Then he shows his amazing garden. 
Then he gives amazing wine. And then finally, King Xerxes wants to show off his wife. He's saying, come and see how great I am, and I'll show you the amazing and perfect life I have. King Xerxes wants everyone to be amazed by his power and kingdom. But what happens in this huge party is like what we'd see in every celebrity if we entered their life circumstances. As we enter into the life of King Xerxes, we are exposed to the fact that he's not actually the greatest. And he's got problems just like the rest of us. His problems are different to the average person, but he's just like the rest of us. He may seem to have so much power and control, but in actual fact, his power and control is limited. We see in verse 1, he ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. This means that the king is the superpower of the day. He's the king of the world, the supreme ruler. And we see this man has all these vast possessions, and it takes him 180 days to show everyone his vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Then after doing that, he has another seven days of showing off in his enclosed garden. And then we see in verse 6, and that is a verse to take, take our breath away and to leave you in no doubt of the king's glory and wealth. This king is truly amazing. That, that is what people would come away with. And then we come to the wine. We see the abundance of wine served in goblets of gold. In verse 8, it seems to be so strange that the king has to command the guests to drink without restrictions. We see people at parties, especially royal banquets, they won't need to be encouraged to drink the wine. But here we see the king commanding that everyone drinks without limitations. That exposes something significant about King Xerxes. The king wants to be adored by his guests. He wants everyone to see his greatness and awe, and he wants everyone to obey him. King Xerxes is putting on this banquet to gain con total control over everyone. But a problem comes as the king obeys his own drinking rule. He is in high spirits because of the wine and he wants to show everyone another possession. He wants to display his wife to everyone so they can see her beauty and as we come into this part, it just shows the king's ill treatment of his wife. He simply sees his wife and treats her as another possession. His wife is simply just like the provinces he rules over. He treats his wife like an amazing wealth and his great garden. King Xerxes treats his wife as something he can just show off. Just look at how he goes about getting her to come to him. Notice verse 10. He commanded, he told her, there was no choice for Vashti. But when King Xerxes commands his wife to show her beauty, this is where his party is pulled apart. We see the king's greatness is ex extinguished as we see Queen Vashti's answer. Queen Vashti is the party killer for King Xerxes. So let's continue reading to see what happens when Queen Vashti responds to the king. Notice chapter 1 
verse 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Karshena, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Mers, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memucan replied in the, king's, in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of, the, of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will, be made know, will become known to all the women, and so will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repelled, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. We see from chapter 1, verses 12 to 22, we see the king's control disregarded. We saw from point one that King Xerxes is putting on this banquet to gain total control over everyone. He wants everyone to see his greatness and he wants everyone to be under his control. But here Vashti says no to the king. And so many people have come up with lots of different reasons to why Vashti has said no. And if you're interested, you can find that out in commentaries. But the reality is we don't know why Vashti said no. And ultimately, we don't need to know. The main point of Vashti rejecting the king isn't about Vashti. It's about the king. Vashti's refusal shows us that the power, control, and greatness of King Xerxes is limited. The author here pens King Xerxes as a fool. He looks an amazing king with everything and the ruler of the world. 
yet his marriage is a sham. His power is not total at all. Queen Vashti says to King Xerxes, no, I'm not obeying you. And everyone at the banquet sees this unfold. So what happens next? King Xerxes has a fit of rage and he's furious. The man who controls 127 provinces is overcome by his own anger. One commentator says, he who wanted to control, wanted control over everything and everyone, yet cannot control his own temper. The king is done for, so he gets his wise men in verses 13 to 22, and they come to the conclusion that Vashti has, has to go, and she is never again allowed to be in the king's presence. Look at verse 22. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. So a royal command has been given out in every province by an angry, drunken king. And it's that men will be ruler, rulers in their own households. This is laughable from the king. How can you even enforce that? King Xerxes has lost it and he's trying to command the tide to turn. This new decree that he's brought in to revive his greatness has actually revealed his insecurity. King Xerxes is doing all he can to retain his power and rule, but in doing so he exposes his limited power. In chapter 1, we learn from King Xerxes the feebleness of authority, power, and wealth. In one moment, King Xerxes has been shaken. The author wants us to see the foolishness of living a life for wealth and power. And we as people can be so often just like the king. We can pursue greatness, wealth, power, and control. And as we look at this king... We need to know that living for wealth, power, and control is foolish. Living a life for those things can be stripped of us in an instant. And ultimately, we'll lose our grip on power and, control and money one day. And Jesus wisely tells us in Luke 12, 15, that our lives don't consist in the abundance of possessions. Our life isn't about what we have. But chapter 1 also helps us view God's providence with patience. Providence is simply the goodness of God as he governs the universe. Chapter 1 doesn't read great, does it? We see a king showing off his greatness and then being shaken by the rejection of his wife. Then we see the, the king get rid of his wife and put in laws that cannot be enforced. Chapter 1 shows us a king that is oblivious to the Lord and he's pursuing his own gain. But just because God isn't mentioned in this chapter doesn't mean he isn't at work. God is sovereign in his plan and he's working together his will in this passage. Queen Vashti and the king's outburst of anger is going to be an instrument for God. In this dark world where selfish Prideful, a selfish, prideful king seems to be ruling. God is in the background running the show. 
This is just the beginning. God is bringing about his plan and salvation for his people. Esther 1 brings us the question today. Even in dark days of uncertainty and evil rulers at work, will we rest in the goodness of God who is in control? Will we rest knowing that the Lord God is in control even when we may not see him at work? Will we rest in him knowing that he will bring about his plan and he will save his people? And Esther chapter 1 also calls us to long for a better king. Here we see a, a king marked with selfishness and one who views his bride as a simple tool to show off. This chapter brings us to long for the Lord Jesus, one who rules righteously, one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. One who invites us with love and grace. One who isn't marked by lust and selfishness, but one who gives himself up for his bride, the church. Jesus is the better king, a king we can trust completely and someone who calls us all to receive his grace and mercy. As we move into Esther chapter 2, it shows the selfishness and lust of King Xerxes. King Xerxes contrasts King Jesus, and we'll see it in more detail as we come into chapter 2. So let's read together chapter 2 of Esther. So chapter 2, verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, and what had been decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women who please, let the young woman who pleases the king, be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now, there was in the cit citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jar, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, Many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who was in charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace 
and moved her and her attendants into the best place in Horem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. This is God's word. Esther chapter 2 is no romantic love story like Cinderella. Esther chapter 2 is a story where power becomes sickening. We have King Xerxes and his personal attendants. They come to him with a plan, a plan to get things back together. We see in verses 1 to 4 that the king will appoint men in all his 127 provinces to bring beautiful young women to the king. These women would undergo beauty treatments, and then the king would pick the one he likes best to be queen. 
Then, after we hear this plan by the king, notice verses 5 to 7. The author, he stops us in his tracks while he's explaining the king's plan. The author wants us to sit up and listen more carefully to verses 5 to 7. Keep your eyes on this family. He wants us to know about a Jewish family that is still in Persia. Mordecai and his cousin Esther. And the author tells us that Esther is beautiful and has a great figure. The author of Esther is telling us clearly, you know what's going to happen. Esther is going to be queen. Then we see verse 8. Of course, Esther is taken to the king's palace and given this beauty treatment. And then we see in verse 9, Esther is winning the favor of Haggai. But then we get something significant in verse 10. Mordecai has told Esther not to reveal her nationality and family background. Mordecai and his cousin Esther are exiles in a strange land under a pagan king. And Esther is taken, and then we meet, and when we meet Esther, it's strange that the author gives us her two names. The name she's known by in Persia is Esther, but her Hebrew name is Hadasha. It's almost like there's two Esthers, a Hebrew Esther and a Persia Esther. And the question is, why does the author see it important to name, to give her Hebrew name? It seems to suggest the challenge facing the, church, the people of God in exile. Esther's identity is a, is a child of God in this world, but she's about to be brought in a, into a pagan kingdom as queen, which isn't the place for a child of God. And I think this, this tension is also seen today in our lives as Christians. Verse 10, Mordecai tells Esther to, keep, to have a keep-your-head-down approach. Don't say anything about who you really are. Esther goes into the palace and is made to conform to their ways, to the pagan world. And as Christians, this is a daily thing for us, isn't it? We are told each day to conform to the world. Our flesh and this world we live in just tries to get us to be like it. And it's the easiest thing to do. Just don't say anything and go along with the crowd. Go along with what they do and say. This is the temptation of us every day at work, in our families, at home, online. To just go along with the crowd. As we seek to live out our identity as Christians, we must know it's hard and costly to do. We see here in Esther, Esther had no choice to go into the palace and be queen. But Esther could have revealed her nationality, who she really was. But she kept her true identity quiet until she felt it was safe. Someone once said, you can't stop the birds flying over you, your head but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. It's a humorous saying, but we can't control the fact that we're in this world, but we can control whether we're going to be of the world, conformed and molded like this world. Instead, as Christians, we're called to live out our true identity in the world as people who follow and love the Lord Jesus. But we see God's hand in this chapter and we, we can easily guess what happens next. Esther goes through all these beauty treatments 
And then after a year of it, she's allowed to go and see the king. Well, this wasn't just to stand in front of the king and see which uh, woman the king liked best. Now, all the women would sleep with the king and then he'd choose the one he likes best and make her queen. We see from verses 17 to 18 that Esther has won the favor of the king. He's more attracted to Esther than any of the other women. We knew this would happen, didn't we? When we first came across Esther, she was always going to become queen. Even though this chapter is ugly and the treatment of women in it is disgusting, chapter 2 shows God using the evil plans and actions of men to bring about his purposes. Just as we see in Joseph in Egypt as a slave, the evil was when Joseph's brothers sold him, they hated him so much, so they sold him as a slave. But God used that evil to bring about the salvation of his people. And here we see in Esther chapter 2, we see evil intent. We see these nobles telling the king to go and get a new queen to replace Vashti. And the plan was to go and get beautiful women to come to the palace, go through the beauty treatments. And then once they'd been through that for a year, they'd go sleep with the king, and then whichever woman the king liked best is to be queen. This is an evil plan. Yet Esther is chosen. Esther has no choice. But Esther finds favor in the king, and suddenly, from nowhere, Esther becomes queen. A Jewish girl has become queen of Persia. Although Esther chapter 2 is a story of abuse, it's also a picture of God's work. We see that God uses his weak servants for his work. Esther, an abused, abducted Jewish girl, far from home, fearful to reveal her true identity. Here we see a broken Esther, yet we see her about to be used by the Lord God. In chapter 2, we're reminded of the gospel. We're reminded that God uses his weak servants for his greatest works. We remember the Lord Jesus. Yet Jesus, in his weakest moment, dying on the cross, God used it to save people who would come to him and trust in him. Here we see Esther abused and broken, yet she's going to be used by God. God builds his kingdom through weak servants. But we also see in Esther, chapter 2, that God is dictating the show, even through the king's evil. This chapter is the king and his officials making real choices. The officials make the choice to bring this idea to the king. The officials make the choice to bring Esther in. And the king makes a choice to get all these women. The king makes a choice to get a new queen. And the king chooses Esther from his own choice. Yet behind all this, God is dictating the show. God is using all the choices of these evil men to bring about his purposes. God is in control, not King Xerxes. And later on in this series, we'll see how God was dictating the show. We'll see how significant at the end of this chapter, Mordecai, uh, of the plot that Mordecai hears of of how God just brought Mordecai in the right place at the right time to hear this plot in verses 21 to 23. But we'll see how God uses that in a future sermon. 
Proverbs 21 verse 1 is in clear view in chapter 2. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The king in chapter 2 is making real choices, but the Lord is using them choices to fulfill his plan. And the Lord's plan is to make Esther queen. And the Lord sovereignly brings this about. This is significant. In Esther chapter 2, it's hard to see the Lord's sovereign hand without knowing the end of the story. But here, although there's evil occurring in our, in our world today, and things can so often look out of control, we know that God is still in control. We know that the Lord is at work. While Jesus was on earth, he knew that God was in total control. Jesus knew and lived knowing that God is sovereign over everything. And while Jesus was on earth, evil occurred and things looked out of control. Jesus was nailed to a cross and died a cruel death. Yet God was bringing about his plan to save people through Jesus. Tonight, as we close, I want to assure us all that the Lord is on the throne. Although this world may seem out of control with war and so many evil rulers, God is still at work today and his plan will be accomplished. Although it's sometimes hard to see God at work in our lives and we can't understand what he's doing, we may even wonder if he's in control sometimes. Let's know this for sure that God is on the throne. God is going to save his people. God can even use the evil of today to bring about his purposes. So let's, as God's people, trust him even when we don't know what's happening even when we have questions, because God will accomplish his good plan for his glory and our good. I'll finish with Romans eight twenty-eight, And it reminds all God's people that we know that in all, things, God, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God is on the throne. So let's proclaim that to finish. Let's stand and sing, Behold our God who is seated on his throne.
words from Jude. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.